1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, which choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her landmark new book, Leaving Iberia, Islamic Law and Christian Conquest in Northwest Africa, Jocelyn Hendrickson, launches a searingly brilliant legal history centered on the question of how medieval and early modern Muslim jurists in Iberia and North Africa wrestled with various thorny questions of living under or migrating away from non-Muslim political sovereignty. This book combines meticulous social and political history with nimble and accessible readings of a vast range of sources from the Maliki school of law. What emerges from this exercise is a picture of the Maliki legal tradition in particular and Islamic law more broadly that is unavailable for predictable readings, is enormously interesting and deliciously complex. This lucid book should also be a delight to teach in various graduate and upper-level undergraduate courses. Here now is my conversation with Professor Jocelyn Hendrickson. Uh, Hello, Josie. Welcome to the New Books Network. It is a real pleasure uh, to have you on our show and um, a a real uh, privilege uh, to learn so much from your splendid uh, new book, uh, which is an incredibly layered examination of a number of fascinating and important uh, uh, texts. It really is legal history at its best uh, in in many ways. Um, So looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Josie, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners your journey, how you became a scholar of Islam.
0: Uh, Sure. And First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a real honor. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time to read through the book. My interest in religion as a subjective study, uh, not just Islam, but religion broadly, I think, started quite early. I grew up on an island near Seattle and went through a fantastic public school system that introduced students to different religious traditions very early on. They had a major field trip to religious sites of worship in middle school uh, and paid real attention to the history of religions in high school. Uh, I had grown up part Lutheran uh, and part hippie, (laughs) meaning very pluralist. Um, And so even with that little bit of diversity, By my senior year in high school, I was quite curious about religious diversity and and bothered by Christian hegemony in the United States. And I remember writing a senior honors thesis uh, for my humanities seminar in high school on the impossibility of a unified world religion. Despite that promising start, though, I I started practical. I went to the University of Washington as a biology major and planned to be a geneticist. Uh, But once I started taking religion courses, uh, I I really just uh, turned toward that. I started with a broad survey of Eastern religions and was just completely fascinated. And I knew right away that's what I want to do. And then the next semester, I took Western religions and I immediately knew that that was what I wanted to study. Uh, So I declared my major in what's still called Comparative Religion at the University of Washington. And I will always be grateful to my undergraduate program for what happened next, which is that it was immediately pressed upon me that language study is absolutely imperative and time consuming. Uh, To graduate with the comparative religion degree, we needed two years of a language, but to get honors, which I wanted to do, uh, I would need three years of a scriptural language. So that meant Hebrew or Sanskrit or Pali, Uh, or Arabic, or, or the like, you know, a language of scripture. And I had only at that point taken these big surveys of world religions. So I really wasn't in a position to make an informed decision as to what religion I most wanted to study. What I chose was Arabic. I don't really know why, but I chose Arabic. And that meant that I was studying Islam and I kept using Arabic. (laughs) I took five years uh, to finish my bachelor's because I spent one full year in Cairo studying nothing but Arabic. And after graduation, I went back to Cairo for another full year of Arabic through the CASA program. And by that point, I was pretty sure I wanted to do a PhD in Islamic studies, Uh, but I had a bit of a detour. I had a fellowship to spend a year in Beirut studying religion and conflict. But conflict intervened, the terrorist attacks of September 11th were that year, uh, and my sponsor helped reroute me to Northern Ireland instead of Beirut, uh, where I was able to do a master's in peace and conflict studies. I also spent a year working in a law firm uh, and applying to law schools. I was very tempted by law school, uh, but especially by the joint JD-PhD program in law and religion uh, at Emory University. There's really nothing like it. Um, but ultimately, I, I turned down some very shiny law school admissions, uh, including a full ride to Emory's law school, and then was just, uh, in quotes, just the PhD. Uh, but these various interests came together very nicely in my graduate training at Emory. Uh, and the dissertation research I was able to pursue in this long Islamic legal text really brought all those interests together.
1: Terrific so i thought maybe with this particular book it might be useful for the listeners to hear you sort of um, uh, to begin by setting the stage a bit uh, the book is titled leaving iberia um i was thinking maybe it will be useful to talk a bit about the the geographical context the historical uh, sort of context and the central question the legal question that these jurists that you that you study are are wrestling with Um, And maybe, I know you you deal with a number of different actors, but maybe if you could just name maybe two or three most central uh, to the the narrative, and then we'll get more into their thought and other complexities in a moment. But maybe if you could just set the stage a bit, the key question, the historical context, the geographical context, and the main actors.
0: Okay. So my book uh, examines Islamic legal responses to Muslims living under Christian rule, in Iberia and North Africa in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Um, That's a lot. I I think it'll help a little to set the stage uh, to talk a bit about my research process and how I came to those specifics. Uh, So while a lot had been written about the status of non-Muslims under Muslim law, when I first started this project long, long ago, I was interested in the reverse. I wanted to know what Islamic legal sources had to say about the status of Muslims living under non-Muslim law. And I very quickly found that all arrows pointed toward the Iberian Peninsula. The fall of Al-Andalus, also known as the Christian reconquest of Iberia, uh, is often described as a turning point in Islamic history when some of the first substantial Muslim populations fell under permanent Christian rule. Muslims had found themselves under non-Muslim rule in other parts of the world. Uh, The Levant during the Crusades is a good example. Um, But those other historical cases involved smaller populations, or they were temporary, and they didn't leave behind a legal discourse grappling with this predicament uh, of Muslim subjection to Christian rule. In Iberia, We did find a very well-established Muslim population that had ruled parts of the peninsula for nearly 800 years, from 711 when Muslim armies first crossed from North Africa to Iberia, uh, up until the 1492 surrender of Granada, which was the last Muslim kingdom in Iberia. So when Christian kingdoms in Iberia conquered more and more Muslim territory beginning in the 11th century, Large populations of Muslims were brought under permanent Christian rule for the first time. So this really is a, a turning point. Uh, from that point, for for nearly 400 years, many Iberian Muslims lived as Mudéjars, which is the term for Muslims living under Christian rule as Muslims. That is, Mudéjars were allowed to practice Islam, even if they were subject to some restrictions that varied by region. Beginning in 1500, Muslims were forcibly converted to Christianity, uh, first in Granada and then in the remainder of the peninsula. And that population, known as Moriscos, are generally con- generally uh, considered to be clandestine Muslims or crypto-Muslims, they're sometimes called, uh, who were forced to act as Christians externally, uh, but who maintained their Muslim identity in secret. And the Moriscos were later expelled from Spain in the early 17th century. So this centuries-long process of Christian conquests in Iberia posed a number of difficult new legal questions for Muslim jurists. The most basic was just the very permissibility of Muslim residents under non-Muslim rule. Was it legitimate for Muslims to remain in their homes and become Christian subjects? Or were they obligated to emigrate to some Muslim territory? And if they stayed, what would that mean? Was it possible to live a truly Muslim life without Muslim rule? The advent of these questions uh, at this this historical juncture was all the more interesting because jurists had so little precedent to rely on in trying to answer them. Uh, During the formative centuries of Islamic law, when the various uh, schools of law cohered around certain doctrines that they attributed to their founders or earliest authorities, the Islamic empire had always been expanding. Uh, So Muslims were simply assumed to live under Muslim law. And these later jurists at the time of the reconquest were supposed to ground their legal positions in existing school doctrine, but the issue of of Muslims living under permanent Christian rule had simply not arisen. Um, So how would they be able to answer these questions, these, these questions of such vital import for the Muslims of an entire region? So, so far, this is the interesting problem that quite a number of scholars before me were attracted to. And when I came to this subject, uh, quite a lot had already been written on this topic of Islamic legal responses to the reconquest and the implications of this major event for both Christian-Muslim relations and for Islamic law. But what surprised me was that this existing literature only treated a handful of Islamic legal opinions, or fatwas. Uh, so not only were there very few texts under discussion, but the literature focused overwhelmingly on opinions by only two jurists. And here I'm finally naming names. <laughs> so the chief mufti of Fez was one of them, uh, Ahmed al-Bancharisi. Uh, and in 1491, he issued a pair of fatwas asserting that conquered Iberian Muslims have an obligation to emigrate to Muslim t- territory. And the second guy, in addition to Wancherisi, uh, is Al-Wahrani, or the so-called Mufti of Oran, who in 1504 advised Granada and Maurice Carlos as to how they could uh, practice Islam in secret. And <clears throat> to many observers, these two jurist rulings presented a fascinating tension. Wacharisi was characterized as using strict interpretation of Islamic law to condemn those Muslims who remained in Iberia, while Wahrani was seen as as far more flexible, creative, and sympathetic to their plight. And when I started out, I was fascinated by this tension between Wacharisi and Wahrani, but I was also convinced that I would be able to find more texts to bring into this conversation. And I'm sharing a bit of this research trajectory because I think it reveals How deeply entrenched some of our scholarly assumptions are, uh, and how disciplinary boundaries, national boundaries, um, all kinds of boundaries uh, can constrain our thinking in ways we don't really realize. So when I set out to find more texts, I was looking for fatwas issued in the Mudekar period, that period from roughly the 12th to 15th centuries. And I was convinced that a thorough search of published and manuscript fatwa collections uh, in North Africa would add at least half a dozen texts to this this conversation. So I spent a year and a half searching through every published Maliki fatwa collection I could find, as well as uh, the manuscript libraries of Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, and Spain. And this journey (laughs) resulted in my publishing a lovely guide to Arabic manuscript libraries, uh, but I was not finding any substantial new texts, and people were starting to tell me, um, you know, maybe this has already been done, which is the last thing you want to hear, right? So when I sat down to produce a translation of Wancherisi's Fatwas, I finally realized that I'd been looking in the wrong direction, both geographically and temporally. Uh, and I, I can say more about that epiphany moment later. Uh, but I essentially decided that Juan Tracy was only ostensibly addressing this obligation of Iberian Muslims to emigrate in his famous fatwas. And what he was really concerned with was Portuguese occupation in Morocco itself, uh, which I had sort of barely heard of. It was not something anybody was talking about. Um, so I realized that Muslims living under Christian authority was a pressing concern in Morocco itself. Uh, One that first arose with Portugal's 1415 capture of Ceuta, uh, one of Morocco's Mediterranean ports uh, that now belongs to Spain. So I turned my attention toward Portuguese and Spanish holdings in 15th and century Morocco, uh, not toward the earlier Modejar period in Iberia. And that's when I found quite a number of Muslim legal responses to these Iberian conquests in North Africa. Uh, These opinions are preserved in a 17th-century compilation of fatwas collected by a Moroccan jurist named Zayati entitled al Jawahar al mukhtara or Selected Jewels. Um, So what I do in the book is introduce this Portuguese-focused body of legal opinions and then revisit and reinterpret the fatwas by Wancherisi and Waharani in the light of that material. So all of these opinions were issued in a roughly 25-year period. Uh, and I, I go through them chronologically, um, giving part one to the fatwas preserved by Zayati, uh, most of which are in the 1480s and 1490s. Part two revisits Wancherisi, uh, his two famous 1491 fatwas. And part three revisits Wahranin's 1504 fatwa. And then I take these three medieval case studies and move to the colonial period in part four of the book, um, which I use to. Uh, Examine Islamic legal responses to French colonization in Algeria and Mauritania, uh, but also use those cases as a way to interrogate uh, the disparate fates of all of the fatwas from the first three cases.
1: Wonderful. So, you know, one of the major uh, conceptual interventions of this book that you signal uh, quite early on is that you're trying to present a new kind of uh, theorization of. Uh, the fatwa itself, as a genre, in terms of its form, its purpose, its transmission, the work that it does—you um, know, intellectually, socially, etc.—so um, could you tell a bit uh, and share with our listeners a bit? You know, what is the sort of new theorization of fatwa that you try to offer here, and how does that interrupt some conventional uh, understandings or wisdom around the genre of the fatwa?
0: Um, so. I mentioned this tension uh, between how scholars have seen Wacharisi's fatwas obligating immigration versus how they have viewed Wahranis' advice to the Moriscos, And these two characterizations actually capture very well two, two trends in Islamic legal historiography, uh, both of which I move away from, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Uh, the first trend can be thought of as the closing of the gate of Ijtihad theory. So according to this theory, Muslim jurists were stripped of their interpretive freedom after the 10th century, uh, when the major law schools were consolidated. And after that, they they were left unable to adapt to new realities. So Islamic law becomes uh, outmoded and irrelevant to the changing needs of society. And for many scholars, Omar Sharisi epitomized this. His, His opinions represented this orthodox opinion within the Maliki school, one that he just unthinkingly, cruelly applied to Medihars because he was unable or unwilling to adapt law to their new realities. Um, So he epitomizes medieval stagnancy for many commentators. And um, ironically, it's precisely fatwas as a legal genre that have also been the most called upon as evidence uh, in the refutation of this medieval stagnancy closing-of-the-gate theory. Fatwas are this great question-and-answer genre of legal text that show us the kind of concerns that arose in particular historical moments. So unlike legal manuals that set a statement of school doctrine, uh, for example, that that articulates these rules meant to be good for all times and places, fatwas promise to show us the concerns that aren't adequately addressed by those manuals and and might have prompted a new question. So they allow us to see the active work of jurists bringing their legal tradition to bear on these questions. So I I agree with this latter approach in general, uh, but in their efforts to use fatwas to refute this stagnancy theory, scholars have really focused on fatwas that explicitly address completely novel circumstances or that departs or deviate from some kind of established position. So that is the most obvious cases of nonconformity or innovation are held up as evidence that medieval jurists continued to exert uh, intellectual effort and juristic discretion. And the enthusiasm with which Wohrani's text has been met is a great example of, of that, um, because he doesn't mention emigration and he offers Marisco's practical advice, He is celebrated for coming up with an original solution that accommodated Muslim minorities. uh, And many saw him as arguing directly against Watrice's rigid orthodoxy. So what I argue is that we can find ample evidence for juristic discretion, even in fetos that appear conservative or that appear to do nothing more than establish, uh, you know, apply an established doctrine to a recurring case. Uh, Medieval jurists, you know, the, the so called gate of ijtihad may not have closed, but medieval jurists did face pressure to avoid the appearance of exercising ijtihad. Um, so, jurists like Matrice wanted, to the extent possible, to claim that their opinions were grounded in the school's authoritative early sources. Um, so, I, I'll say more about what I see him doing later, but in, in short, the appearance of conformity to the past. And continuity with received doctrine is often a strategic fiction, one that Wantcherisi works hard to maintain. So even in this case, this jurist who's seen as the epitome of rigid, stagnant orthodoxy, is actually exercising considerable discretion uh, and manipulating past precedence, past precedents to serve his purposes. So and more broadly, I, I don't take fatwas at face value as straightforward or transparent reflections of reality and of the intentions of their authors. Legal texts are shaped by a variety of factors, including material constraints, political pressures, the parameters as to what is acceptable as a valid legal argument, and professional conventions. I read between the lines and interrogate the possible motives and constraints that shape a given fatwa. In other words, I read fatwas as strategically constructed narratives. And this this may sound like a really obvious way to approach historical texts, but Islamic legal texts in particular have often been read uh, without this kind of critical interrogation or nuance. Uh, And just as a final point here, a, a theme that encompasses the whole book is the idea that Islamic legal texts are in a realm of competing ideas. And we can try to identify concrete reasons why some opinions have greater resonance for later jurists than others do. So opinions like Monterey they don't succeed in remaining authoritative because they're orthodox, uh, a concept that seems particularly unsuited to describe any fatwa, which is an ad hoc non-binding opinion. Uh, Instead, there's a range of factors that account for the success of any given opinion. Uh, including historical
1: events and the, the dramatic appeal of a text. Terrific. So in the first uh, part of uh, the book, you e- examine and analyze in, in great detail and with a lot of um, fascinating um, uh, exploration, uh, the eight fatwas from what you just mentioned, Zayati's um, collection, uh, Selected Jewels, uh, that of course uh, is regarding Muslims living under Portuguese authority in the Maghrib. Who have come under Christian rule? Um, I know it will be impossible to talk in any sort of uh, even briefly about all eight fatwas, but maybe you could select a couple or uh, uh, any you know representative uh, fatwas from this uh, selection to share with our listeners a bit. You know what are the sort of major trends and differences that we see in these in these fatwas in this collection? And uh, I also want to ask you: you made a point towards the end of this chapter that it's very important to bring this Maghribi context into view and not to assimilate this whole discussion around the much more well-known uh, sort of Iberian context of you know Christian-Muslim relations and uh, that unfolding narrative that people are more familiar with. Tell us a bit more about why that is very important to you, the Maghribi context and identity of many of these scholars uh, who are uh, uh, you know, represented uh, in the Selected Jewels fatwa um, uh, Compendium.
0: Uh, so don't worry, I won't take you through all eight opinions. <laughs> but I'll, I want to start with why this is important. Uh, these fatwas preserved by Zayati help overturn a very Eurocentric focus in our understanding of Iberian-Muslim relations in the 15th century. They wow. challenge a perception of Iberian exceptionalism. They disrupt the Christian triumphalist narrative regarding the reconquest. And they show Islamic legal texts acting as a form of indigenous resistance to European empire uh, in the 15th century, which I I understand from others is something we don't really have uh, uh, much of in other parts of the world. So as I've mentioned, Iberia has received nearly all of the scholarly attention that has been devoted to the issue of Islamic legal responses to Muslims living under Christian rule the story of Portuguese conquests in North Africa has been sorely neg- neglected in general. And the fact that this body of opinions has been overlooked is a glaring omission, given the fascination and interest scholars have shown in this legal issue. So these opinions uh, related to the Portuguese in North Africa are not just a similar case to Iberia, but happening somewhere else. They're integrally connected uh, to the peoples and events in Iberia. These are Iberian conquerors who arrived in the Malkhrib, occupied most of Morocco's Mediterranean and Atlantic ports, and elicited responses that drew on the same legal categories and precedents that were applied in the fatwas directly related to Iberia. So I'll, I'll give just a few examples of what these fatwas are like, and then come back to these broader points. A few of the fatwas Respond to multi part questions that ask the status of Muslims uh, about the status of Muslims who live in Christian controlled territory or near to it. The questions ask about the legal status of uh, Muslims who fall into set categories. For example, those who merely reside under Christian rule, those who trade with the Christians, those who pay them tribute, those who spy for them and those who fight alongside the Christians against fellow Muslims. Uh, and there's there's one curious category of Muslims who fish with the enemy. Uh, and the jurists respond to each of these categories with some variation. For example, there's an Ibn Barthal who states that those Muslims who merely reside under Christian rule are disobedient to God. They lose their ability to testify or to lead prayer. But as Muslims, they're uh, lives and property remain inviolable. As for those who spy for the enemy, Ibn Barthal states that the commonly accepted view is that spies should be killed. As it turns out that Juan uh, is one of the three jurists presented with a very similar typology. Uh, this suggests that a few jurists in Fez were all given the same questions and quite possibly shared their answers with one another. Based on the biographical information we have for these tourists and some other contextual clues. They were likely writing in the late 1480s. So this is actually well after that first Portuguese conquest of Ceuta in 1415, uh, but it responds uh, possibly quite directly to three other events. Uh, first, Portugal's dramatic conquest in 1471 of both Asila and Tangier, uh, both in Northern Morocco. Uh, responds to a peace treaty signed by the new Watassid ruler, Muhammad al-Sheikh, with Portugal. Uh, and uh, responds to a number of treaties signed with, uh, with Portugal by port cities on Morocco's southern Atlantic coast. Wancherisi's uh, contribution to this particular discourse is called his Berber Fatwa uh, because the question asks him about a, a group of Berbers who failed uh, to relocate when their territory became subject to Christian rule, and this fatwa is particularly important because Montferrand must have written it prior to composing his two more famous fatwas, uh, ostensibly concerned with the Andalus. The Berber fatwa reads like a rough draft for a uh, matajir and the Marbella fatwa. The fact that Montferrand uses the same legal arguments in both opinions again shows that he considered these cases to present the same basic legal problem just of muslim submission to christian rule so there's a sameness here and there's also a difference that are are both important the sameness indicates the existence of a shared legal discourse on muslims in both iberia and north africa and this challenges the perceived exceptionalism of the iberian muslim predicament I'll come back to differences in a moment, but the the history of Islam and Muslims in Iberia, it is fascinating. I I teach a course on medieval Iberia. I love it. Um, There is much about this history that is unique. For example, the the size and longevity of of a Muslim population in Europe, the intermingling of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, the cultural impact of Muslims on their Christian conquerors. There are aspects of medieval Iberia that are unique, but that doesn't make Iberia's Muslims uniquely worthy of study. Uh, but what I'm calling for is, is that we not be blinded by the light of Iberia, such that we neglect the experiences and voices of North African Muslims. And this is probably a good time to explain the title of the book, <laughs> Leaving Iberia, Islamic Law and Christian Conquest in Northwest Africa. So by leaving Iberia, I mean three things. Um, the first is a reference to the emigration of Muslims away from Iberia, toward North Africa, um, you know, in response to, to all kinds of pressures, including the obligation to emigrate. Second, it's a reference to the Christian Iberian conquerors, who likewise left Iberia to pursue reconquest and crusade in North Africa. And third is my call to shift some of our scholarly focus away from Iberia and toward North Africa, especially as pertains to Muslims grappling with Christian conquest. And the second meaning is the one that's invoked on the book's cover. Uh, Most books on Islamic law have a cover image of an Arabic manuscript, um, and that also would have been apt, but I chose a detail from the Pastrana tapestries, a set of four enormous tapestries that uh, King Afonso of Portugal commissioned to commemorate his twin victories over Asila and Tangier in 1471. Uh, The detail is a boat full of Portuguese soldiers who are besieging Asila. And in choosing that image, I hope to underscore the importance of the Portuguese conquests in North Africa for both Iberians and Magravies or North Africans. Uh, and also to help challenge the notion that the so-called Christian Reconquest was always considered a recovery of the Iberian Peninsula only, and that it ended in 1492 with a clear Christian victory. As, As others have shown, both Portugal and Castile originally hoped for great conquests in Africa, and they justified those conquests on the basis of the same notions of Reconquista and Jihad current in the peninsula itself. Only once these North African ventures were defeated or abandoned did the reconquest assume the seemingly natural borders of the Iberian Peninsula uh, and end in 1492. Uh, So one last point here to pick up on the thread from earlier, the differences between these fatwas preserved by Zayati and those pertaining to Iberia are as important as the similarities. Uh, The biggest difference is that they're The the Zayati ones are clearly informed by an active state of war between various North African groups and the Portuguese. Jihad to recover territory is mentioned as a real and praiseworthy activity. Uh, And in two of the cases, Muslims eating the enemy are accused of apostasy, not just sin. Uh, These fatwas are messier and more nuanced than the the Andalusi ones, but they're also often much harsher. They show jurists actively resisting foreign domination by trying to persuade their fellow Muslims to refuse collaboration with the enemy. Uh, And in two cases, uh, the jurists appear to critique the Wataasid ruler for inaction and instead sanction irregular warfare against Portugal. And in all cases, uh, there's a sense of urgency that these opinions mattered for real life and were issued in a state of urgency. For example, uh, Ibn Bartal was sent a repeat question, uh, and he, he protested in one of the photos, he said, like, I already answered your question, <laughs> but you didn't get it, and you sent it again, um, so it's, it's just, it's kind of wonderful to see that real life impact, the expectation of that these legal opinions aren't just sitting in a text somewhere, they actually meant something in real life to people.
1: Well, next, uh, let's turn to one of the major protagonists of this book, among many others. But um, um, you especially spend a lot of time analyzing um, 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 Alwan Sharisi's um, uh, two major texts, Asnal al that you just mentioned, and uh, Marbella uh, Fatwa. Um, uh, I wanted to actually ask you, 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 after your analysis of these of these two fatwas, uh, especially Asnal al Matajir. You make the point that you're trying to complicate his image of, you know, being sort of the um, uh, the, the inflexible or the doctrinaire kind of jurist who had an unfixed, uh, excuse me, unchanging view of uh, the law as fixed um, and saw legal precedent also in this kind of very um, uh, stringent ways. And you try to actually make the argument very convincingly that, in fact, this is a construction on his part. He constructs that view of the legal past that actually then works for his own normative agenda. Um, so, so I was wondering if you could speak about that argument uh, and do that by uh, uh, talking a bit about the key themes that come up in these in these two fatwas and what kinds of texts uh, they are.
0: Um, <clears throat> so you, you just summarized it really well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think what I'll do is I I want to come back to that epiphany I mentioned a bit ago that really changed my perspective on these two photos and how to read them. Um, The question components of these texts are quite memorable and really provide the key to the kinds of manipulations and strategies that I see Juan Tracy pursuing um, to to realize that normative agenda. So in the question component to Esna Matazir, Juan Tracy's asked uh, about a group of Andalusi Muslims who had abandoned their homes, property, and former lives. They're described as fleeing with their religion and children, uh, managing to escape infidel rule, and resettling in the land of Islam uh, somewhere in the Maghrib. But unfortunately, after completing their hijra, uh, these Andalusi Muslims were unable to find any security or prosperity in the Maghreb. They regretted their immigration. They they began to openly curse the Melchiorp, and they expressed a desire to return to Castile like, by any means possible. Juan Charisi is asked to clarify whether or not the obligation to emigrate is contingent on material comfort, uh, which is clearly a rhetorical question. <laughs> but he's he's also asked what punishment these Andalusis deserve for their offenses in the dominant reading of this question that is in, in the literature before me, uh, for Esen al this description of the Mudehirs has evoked a lot of sympathy for the, the tremendous difficulties facing them uh, and facing all mudikhars. And most scholars analyzing the texts were interested in the social and political realities of Muslim life under Christian rule. So they tended to... Uh, describe El Wantrici and his fatwas as extremely severe and of grave consequence for the modejars because he he didn't permit any kind of residence other than just complete inability. And these immigrants were seen as a pious and beleaguered group who in some accounts approached El Al- Wantwaterisi Al- themselves asking him to sanction their return home to Castile. Uh, there's an another assumption that Juan Teresey delivered his severe uh, condemnation directly to the Andalusias in question, and also that they, they took the, the answers home and circulated them among Iberian Muslims. The fatwas are then uh, presumed to have encouraged immigration by those Muslims who were able to leave, namely the elites, and that in turn left the poor defenseless and branded all modechars who remained as sinners and traitors. A couple early authors even blamed the Wancherisi himself because of this dynamic of of drawing away the elites and leaving the poor who were then susceptible to to apostasy and control. Uh, They blamed Wancherisi for the downfall of Spanish Islam. Now, instead of reading this question with this aim of understanding how better, I approached the text from an Islamic legal perspective asking first, okay, who is posing this question? Who is the audience, right? What is the mandate for the answer? And as it turns out, another jurist located somewhere in the Maghrib named Ibn Khatiyah is the questioner. And what that means is that the immediate audience for Juan Therese's response was this other jurist, not the emigrants. And he was asking about offenses committed in the Mohib, uh chief among them fitna, or the disruption of the public order that was re- would result from other Maghribis hearing these Andalusis in the Maghrib insulting the Makhrib. Uh, mocking the obligation to emigrate and complaining or claiming, sorry, uh, the Christian rule is far preferable to Muslim rule. Um, so Mu'tazil presents a long response building the case for obligatory emigration based on numerous Quranic verses enjoining emigration and prohibiting alliances with unbelievers. Uh, he includes a few hadiths concerning emigration. And he uses, uh, he relies quite a bit on one specific legal precedent that uh, I'll come back to. Um, when he arrives at the specific punishments that these Andalusis deserve, his answer is striking. He recommends an exemplary punishment. And in, in looking at all these clues about what's going on in the Malfour, I realized that these unhappy Andalusi emigrants had probably landed in court in Morocco. And a jurist associated with that court case must have written to Juan Trisi for an opinion from the capital. I don't think these Andalusi immigrants saw the fatwa. I don't think there's any evidence that this text circulated in Iberia or was read by any Mudejars. Uh So, beyond his questioner, Juan Trisi was writing uh, for a large audience, but that audience was the wider professional legal community. That would read the, the Ma'yar, which is his massive 12-volume fatwa compilation, for which Juan Tracy is actually primarily known. Uh, and he chose to include Esnal Matajar in the beya Fatwa in that compilation, but he excluded all the opinions preserved by Zayati that relate to Portuguese occupation in the Malchub, even his own Berber Fatwa. So what I argue uh, is that Juan Tracy decided to write one thorough, compelling, definitive statement on the obligation to emigrate primarily because it was a pressing matter of security and territorial integrity in the Maokurb in his time. Uh, he was in a unique position as compiler of the Ma'ihar uh, to decide which fatwas would receive a broad circulation. He couldn't know it for sure at the time, but his compilation did, in fact, go on to be copied uh, extensively and become a standard Maliki reference work. So we he could have composed this one compelling statement that he wanted to preserve and circulate in the context of his Berber fatwa or in the context of Ibn Qutaybah's questions about the Andalusi emigrants and the man from Marbeya. And I argue that Juan Chirisi chose the latter as the more compelling frame. Uh, he's constructing this argument, right? So when Juan Chirisi composed these ostensibly Andalusi fatwas, the fall of Muslim Iberia had been underway for over four centuries and with was within months of completion. The fate of Iberia's Muslims would have provided a more concrete historical precedent than the still unfolding and much more complicated situation in Morocco. And this tragedy would also have served as a warning for Juan Tracy's present Malherby audience of the consequences of, of complacency in the face of unchecked Christian advances. So I read between the lines. In C.S. Matajir, in which a, a Mughrabi jurist writes for a Mughrabi audience about offenses taking place in the Maghreb as a powerful but veiled commentary on the foreign occupation of the Maghreb in Muachruzzi's time. Aside from the power of the Andalus as a tragic precedent, framing his commentary in this way had a few other advantages. Uh, it allowed Muachruzzi to blame Andalusis instead of maghrebis for misdeeds, it allowed him to set aside his more overt political critique of Watasid in action uh, that had appeared in his Berber Fatwa. It allowed him to leave readers with quite memorable human stories and allowed him to present very simple things in which Muslims who are capable of emigrating are required to do so. He doesn't deal with anything more complicated than capable Muslims. Um, in the Marbeya Fatwa, just briefly, Juan is asked about a man who had remained in that city to look for his brother. He, This man becomes an invaluable spokesperson for the community and helps them negotiate with Christian authorities. The question is whether or not this man can remain for the purpose of helping others. But the question also describes this man and all those around him as capable of emigration. So again, Juan see avoids uh, any terribly difficult uh, questions and again, prescribes emigration, refuting the idea that seemingly meritorious acts could be a reason not to emigrate. And if we turn to Juan Tracy's answers, he engages in quite a few distinct strategies to convince readers of the obligation to emigrate under nearly all circumstances, aside from immobility. And I see all of these strategies as instances of juristic discretion that require originality and skill, legal dexterity. But that ultimately are in the service of an opinion that's meant to uphold what we might consider uh, as a conservative rather than an accommodating opinion. And I'll just mention a couple of these strategies. The first is unacknowledged borrowing, or what today we would call plagiarism in modern terms. Thanks to the work of other scholars, we know that Montresor borrowed extensive material from an earlier Andalusian jurist named Ibn Rabi'a. And Juan Trisi distributed parts of Ibn Rabia's fatwa as the answers to both Esnal Matajr and the Marveya fatwa, along with much of his own material taken from the Berber fatwa or composed anew for this, this new composition. Normally jurists cite their sources, uh, but failing to do so helps Juan Trisi build his case. It bolsters his own authority, because um, <clears throat> he looks like the author of all this, and more importantly, he avoids having to admit that Ibn Rabiyah wrote his text in response to uh, a very particular problem, which was the considered opinion presented to him of another jurist who advocated the permissibility of remaining under Muslim rule. And that other jurist had a number of, of seemingly good reasons. And Juan Tracy takes those arguments and responds to them all, but doesn't acknowledge that there was ever a jurist making those claims. And by erasing that circumstance, by virtue of not citing Ibn Rabi'ah at all, uh, once you manages to claim a scholarly consensus um, against residents under Christian rule, a a consensus that clearly didn't really exist. Right. Because we know at least this one other jurist was making these arguments. So Montreuxi can't really risk revealing the context that led to Ibn Rabi'ed's fatwa. He suppresses that fatwa in order to preserve that claim of scholarly consensus. So that's one tactic. And I'll just mention one other strategy. uh, is Montreuxi's attempt to make a new ruling look like a seamless continuation of an old ruling, grounded in the established doctrine of the Maliki school's earliest masters. The new ruling is that conquered Muslims must emigrate. Right, and the old rule is that lone converts, that is, people living in infidel territory, Dar al Harb, who convert to Islam must emigrate to Muslim territory. They're not allowed to remain where they are, and their property is not given protection as inviolable until they bring it with them to Muslim territory. In plain logic, there are disparities between the case of a lone convert to Islam and the case of a whole community of Muslims whose territory is suddenly conquered. Uh, by non Muslims. But the first case, the lone convert, had been discussed and could be traced back to early authorities. So, Juan Cherisi expends considerable effort in equating these two cases. And that allows him to apply or claim that he's applying this well established rule uh, in Maliki doctrine uh, to this uh, case that he sees as simply another facet of this old case.
1: Well, next let's turn to um, uh, the 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 another text uh, by Wahrani, which is uh, oftentimes uh, labeled the 1504 fatwa, and as you sort of uh, mentioned in the book, that it's oftentimes presented as the other of Wan Sharisi in terms of its sort of permissiveness, etc. Um, and this, of course, was uh, advice that he offered to the Moriscos. Uh, first of all, uh, you show, in fact, in this chapter. Uh, that this, in fact, is not a conventional fatwa, but a different kind of text. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what kind of text this was. And just generally, what kind of advice did you offer to the Moriscos in terms of um, their engagement with their non-Muslim uh, sovereign uh, authority? So
0: well, well, Harini's text is, is this really amazing, relatively short text meant for the Moriscos. Uh, Wahrani wrote it in 1504, which means that he would have been writing for the first Muslims who had been forcibly converted to Christianity in Granada. And what he does in this text is offer these Moriscos a list of strategies and advice that allow them to maintain a sense of adherence to Islamic practices like prayer and ablution, while also making sure they don't get caught. Uh, so, for example, he states that they can use mere gestures to pray if they need to. They can consider swimming in the river to be their ablutions. Uh, and they, they don't need to worry about sinning. They won't sin if they're forced to do things like pray in church or drink wine. Uh, as long as their hearts remain firm in faith and they, they continue to, to believe and to know that these things would normally be prohibited if they, if they could afford to not do them. This advice was clearly useful and meaningful to the Moriscos, because they continued to copy this text, presumably at great li- risk, throughout the century-long Morisco period. We have three copies of Wahrani's text that were copied by Moriscos. The first one's in Arabic, and the next two are in El Hamiado, or, or Spanish, written in a modified Arabic script. The last one of these three was copied in 1609, and that's the year in which the Edict of Expulsion was proclaimed. Uh, so it's clear they were copying it throughout that period. And for my purposes, there's three notable things about this text. First, uh, it has always been known as the 1504 fatwa, but I argue that it's not actually a fatwa. And, you know, that's okay. Not everything has to be a fatwa. Um, <laughs> but I don't agree with the prevailing assumption that Maurice Gose sent Wahrani a question that we've now lost. Uh, instead, I think Wahrani, uh, who was working in Fez at the time, encountered a copy of a text known as the 1501 Morisco appeal to the Ottoman Sultan. Uh, that's how it's known to us. Right? Um, in which the Moriscos uh, uh, described their plight. They had just uh, had a rebellion put down and been forcibly converted. And they appealed to the Ottoman Sultan for, for diplomatic aid. And I think that appeal to the Ottoman sultan came through Fez and Wahrani saw it, and that is what prompted him to write actually an unsolicited letter of advice and send it to them, just out of his own concern. The second point is that this text is not really comparable to Maitreisi's fatwas, even though much has been made of of contrasting them uh, with one another. Maitreisi was writing about the obligation to emigrate for Muslims who were capable of doing so. And he composed a two-part technical argumentative treatise full of proof texts and meant for a legal professional audience. Wafani wrote a heartfelt letter of guidance and advice meant for a lay Marisco audience. It contains next to no proof text and does not mention immigration because it's directed at an audience clearly incapable and exempt from that obligation. Um, so, And finally, the, the fates of these two jurist fatwas could not have been more different. Wahrani's well, text is the only one of the opinions I've mentioned so far that we know to have circulated in Iberia, but it's never again mentioned in Islamic legal text related to hijra, uh, or immigration, and seems to have no appreciable impact on the development of Maliki legal thought on this issue. By contrast, Muncherisi's Esnal al and the Marbeya Fatwa enjoyed the opposite fate. They, they can't be shown to have circulated in Iberia, but they succeeded in having a major impact on Maliki legal thought. They became the precedence of record on the issue of Muslim submission to non-Muslim rule. Uh, it's shown
1: when we look at the colonial cases. Towards the end of this book, in the third part, um, you also talk about what one might call the afterlives of these uh, texts uh, coming from the North African and Iberian context in the 15th and 16th centuries. By looking at these really fascinating texts uh, coming out of um, 19th century Algeria and Mauritania, confronted with a different colonial situation, the, the French colonizers. And you show ways in which this, this legacy of uh, people like, especially Juan who sort of becomes canonized by this point uh, on this particular question of Muslims living under non-Muslim rule, uh, how they rework and reconfigure uh, this this legacy or this, this corpus of texts. So uh, as a broad question first, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about some major similarities and differences between these two contexts of Algeria and Mauritania in terms of how they engage and reconfigure the thought of Wancherisi uh, uh, and Maliki Law more broadly in terms of this uh, particular question.
0: <clears throat> so these colonial cases are interesting because we get to hear both sides of the debate uh, on the obligation to immigrate and, and that's quite different from Wancherisi's era for the mauritanian case for example we have we have quite a few fatwas and legal letter, letters that support an obligation to emigrate but but just as many that support the opposite the permissibility or even desirability of remaining under french rule and in the algerian case we have quite a few opinions advocating emigration, uh, and we only have in that case one fully extant opinion rejecting that view but In the corpus, there's a lot of traces of other scholars who must have been defending uh, the permissibility of remaining under French rule as well. So I I think there's two fairly interesting things to note about the Algerian debate. One is the very personal nature of the debate. So when the French was preserved by Zayati, we, we get a lot of these dry typologies, like you know, this category of Muslim does this, this category does that, they spy or they trade. But in Algeria, many of these jurists making these arguments are themselves faced with a choice of remaining in their homes and accepting French rule, uh, accepting a post with the French, or emigrating. And we see some really awful personal attacks. Um, we also see jurists changing their mind. <laughs> in the Caliph and the one text advocating immigration, there's a note marveling at the fact that this. This guy who's, who's put some commentaries in the margin and has lost his mind. <laughs> you know, he, he advocates immigration. He, he quite severely attacks another jurist for all the things he does that, uh, interestingly, mirror the things um, that Juan Tracy talks about in the Marbella Fatwa. And then that jurist who has made all these commentaries linking this, this opponent directly to the Marbella Fatwa, he himself then goes and moves uh, and accepts appointment under French rule. So this is, is something that's personally impacting the very people who are writing, which is quite different from the earlier cases. Um, the second thing that I found really curious about the Algerian case is that it would seem to me of, of the three earlier cases, or the three cases that these Jews could look back to, there's the Zayati fatwas that grappled directly with Christian invasion on Maghreb soil. Uh, and there's the Wancherisi cases that cast everything in terms of these Andalusis. Then there's Wahrani, who's talking about being a secret Muslim. I, I thought, you know, why not look back to Zayati's cases? Why not see that direct connection with fatwas that are issued in a similar context, you know, a Christian invasion in North Africa? But that's not what they look back to. Um, the, the Bancherisi fatwas become dominant, and I think one of the reasons for Algeria is that Um, it, it really is, Monterey seemed to be right in a couple ways. He was right that the tragic fate of Al-Andalus would be seen as a conclusive precedent that made him look correct in his judgment. That, that historical fact validates his opinions for later Muslims. And he was also right, I think, in, in his strategy, his strategy of doing that paid off, uh, flipping from what he could have written about, which was, um, Portuguese occupation. He could have preserved the Berber fatwa and elaborated that instead, but he made a strategic choice to go with the Andalusi ones, and it seems to have worked because they, you know, in in one of the Algerian fatwas, we hear one of the jurists saying, you know, have, haven't these idiots heard the news of El Andalus? You know, this is what happens if you allow Christian rule. Islam, it's not just Muslims who come under Christian rule. Islam will become extinct. Uh, and for Mauritania, it's a very similar pattern. Wahrania is not mentioned. There's even less mention of Zayati and uh, a lot of we see. <laughs> but, but not quite as exclusive. The Mauritanian case moves away both geographically and temporally from that, that pregnancy of the Andalusi example. There's a lot of new arguments. Um, one of the, the most powerful arguments comes to be that, you know, European colonization is everywhere in Africa. There's nowhere to go, and you can't fight it. Uh, so it's, it's just unrealistic at this point to choose hijra or jihad, and submission is really the only uh, answer. Uh, but the Andalusis are still there a little bit. There, there are some of uh, those personal family dynamics, too. There's a cousin, very memorable fatwa in which a cousin is pleading with his cousin, and he says, please don't be like those awful Andalusis who were mocking their Islamic obligations.
1: As a final uh, substantive question on, on this book, uh, towards the end of the book, uh, there is a very fascinating fascinating discussion on um, uh, one particular scholar uh, uh, from Mauritania, uh, Muhammad al-Busadi, and his critique of Bancherisi and the sort of uh, points of his critique, a very fascinating text it seems. Um, uh, could you speak a bit about some key points of his critique uh, and what are some of the implications of, of this critique that you offered?
0: Yeah, um, I love this text. Um, it's, <laughs> it's really long and complicated, and the chapter is complicated, um, but it's this fabulous text. Um, Bousadi is this really interesting figure who who agrees with see that immigration is necessary. Bousadi emigrated; he he left um, Mauritania within the first few years of French colonial presence there, um, but. He argues that the property rights of Muslims who remain under French rule in Mauritania must be respected. So he's got this really interesting middle ground. Um, it's a long treatise posed as a fatwa. And uh, it's what he does is he completely refutes, he dismantles Wancherisi's analogy between those lone converts and the conquered Muslims that underpin basically Wancherisi's entire argument. Without that uh, conflation of conquered Muslims, this new case to this case that's supposedly set settled by scholarly consensus, the the lone converts, without that conflation, Wancherisi doesn't have much of a, 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 you know, his his legal argument is not unassailable, right? Like there's this guy who comes along and just dismantles it, and he shows um, <clears throat> that. Uh, <clears throat> I, he, re, he refutes uh Wancherisi on his own grounds by using Maliki precedents only. He, he agrees that the same proof texts are valid, but um, claims that Wancherisi just doesn't have the legal reasoning right. And he presents a whole, entirely different analogy that ends up showing that the, the property of these uh Mauritanians under French colonial rule uh, needs to be respected. And I it's just a fascinating indeed, document. The bit, but the big takeaway there for me is that Wantricee doesn't succeed in making these opinions the the predominant uh, Maliki statement on this legal issue because his reasoning is is seamless or watertight or because he's orthodox or right. It's it's because of this other constellation of factors that. Later, jurists chose to treat his opinions as correct, and they kept having resonance for people. Um, and it's, it's just really great to see this that, that uh, dismantling of his opinion by Bosadi.
1: So as we're coming uh, to the end of our uh, uh, time, Josie, I was wondering if you could share a bit uh, with our listeners about what might be the next project you might think to do?
0: uh so there's a few <laughs> um one thing is i'll just say I've, i'm still working on this book <laughs> and so is, in case since um there's there'll be an online companion to this book on the on the harvard site and i am uh putting the finishing touches on a couple arabic conditions that'll go up there um and there will also be a downloadable pdf of the book um so that is coming Meanwhile, I'm finishing up an uh, article-length project on Taqiyya in colonial Mauritania, which is a bit of an offshoot from this. And there's a project on Wantarisi's treatise on reprehensible innovations from the
1: 15th century. Leaving Iberia Islamic Law and Christian Conquest in Northwest Africa by Professor Jocelyn Hendrickson, published by Harvard University Press in 2021. Uh, Thank you so much, Josie, for coming on the show for your generous time and for your really lucid and splendid um, answers to these questions and really for generating and producing uh, this incredible um, an incredibly rich um, and uh, complex uh, book that I'm sure will spark discussions and conversations among scholars from multiple uh, fields of knowledge. Uh, uh, So thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Jocelyn Hendrickson about her wonderful new book, Leaving Iberia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and even in 2022, keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you.